0: Welcome back to the Made by Google podcast. I'm your host, Rashid Finch, and this is the podcast where we bring you behind the scenes at Google, talking to the people who work on our devices and services. And today, we have three design legends for you. They're the ones who create colors, shapes, materials, finishes, and hinges now as well. So if you ever wondered what it takes to design a piece of hardware at Google, then this is the episode for you. And I'm so excited that we're just going to dive right in. So let's say hi to Ivy Ross, Isabel Olsen, and Claude Zellweger. Ivy, Isabel, Claude, thank you for joining. Please tell us about your role at Google and how you ended up here. Ivy, can we start with you, please?
1: Sure. I'm the Vice President of Design for Devices and Services, and that's over all of design, industrial design, store design, packaging, etc., And I got to Google, came in through uh, Google X, actually, was hired to work on the potential second edition of Google Glass. Mm -hmm. And I think it's been almost nine years ago. And actually, Isabel and I, were uh, we met that way because she was the head of design for Google Glass at the time.
0: Exactly. And, and frequent listeners of the Made by Google podcast already know that story from Isabel's previous appearance on the Made by Google podcast. But Isabel, for people who haven't heard before, please tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up at Google.
2: Uh, sure. So in my current role, I'm the VP for industrial design, uh, working on our home products, tablets, wearables. And then I also oversee color material and finish for all of our hardware products. And like Ivy mentioned, I started my career at Google uh, working in uh, X, and so that was a very interesting start, um, but excited to be working on Google Hardware.
0: That must be a great place indeed to start at X. Wonderful. And Claude, what about you? So uh, I am the director of industrial design for
3: phones, for AR, and I also lead the packaging team. And i um, the way I got into Google was I was brought on to lead a, uh, a VR specific team at the time because I had some experience in the space. And so I joined Daydream as my first team and then slowly shifted over from VR to AR and uh, closer to uh, I was always part of Ivy's team, but closer to the sort of our core business around phones.
0: Amazing. Thank you. So before we dig in and uh, listeners of the podcast know that we have this internal directory at Google where everyone can uh, state their own personal mission. And I just always like to read those and see uh, what they say. And maybe they reveal something about our guests. So Ivy, yours says play design manifest. Why did you write that?
1: God, you know, I haven't looked at that in years. But when I saw that, I sat with it. I go, yeah, I still believe in that. First of all, play to me. The opposite of play is not work; it's depression. Mm. Playing is doing something without a predetermined outcome, and I think that's how creativity comes: is to give yourself some time to play with ideas. And I just sometimes think we don't give ourselves that permission. So that's a big mission of mine. And then, you know, the next is design. Design to me is is solving problems within boundaries. So after you play without an outcome, then it's time to create boundaries and be creative how to break out of the boundaries you're given. And, and then manifest. I mean, I love bringing ideas to life, kind of starting with nothing, which is really making magic, starting with nothing and ending up with something. So for me... Those are the, the mantras I live by, play, design, and manifest.
0: Yeah, it sounds like you captured the essence of your work in just three words there.
2: Uh, okay, good. Success.
0: <laughs> Amazing. Isabel, three words as well. Make people smile.
2: Yeah, I did, this has been a mantra for me from from the beginning of my career, or maybe even before I started in design. And for me, the most important thing is when we create products, where whether we're solving big problems with new innovations, like, for example, the new Pixel tablet, where we're making the tablet more useful in everyday life. Um, It could be things like that, that just people respond to and think, okay, that was helpful, or that was thoughtful. Uh, But it can also be things like coming up with new surprising colorways, or you turn the product around and you see a pop of color, or when you change the battery of the remotes, it matches the pop button on that remote. So, For me, it's uh, making people smile. It's about adding that delight and joy. And again, going back to Ivy's point about solving problems for people.
0: Amazing. And it worked because people can't see, but I have the Coral Pixel 7a. Definitely did make me smile. So great job there. Claude, finally, uh, design more, less.
3: Yeah, sure. So I think as designers, we always look to do more with less, right? And that could be said about our aesthetic approach, you know, where we aim to delight our users by making the really complex, very technical, simple, Um, but it also applies to kind of how we think about resources, you know, when our goal is to reduce materials and to simplify manufacturing. So it it kind of goes both ways and I, I believe in that very strongly.
0: Today's guests are responsible for the look and feel of our hardware. Ivy Ross is our vice president of design, UX and research for hardware, She's known for a lot of things, like her jewelry design. Some of her work is part of the permanent collection of a dozen museums like the Smithsonian. Isabel Olsen is our vice president of home, wearables, and color material finish. Originally from Sweden, Isabel worked on furniture before joining Google 12 years ago. If you love the look of your Pixel Watch or Nest Wi-Fi Pro, you have Isabel and her team to thank for that. And Claude Zellweger is the director of industrial design for AR and phones. Claude joined Google a few months after the very first Pixel phone launched. The camera bar that we've had since Pixel 6? That's Claude and his team. Way back, Claude designed things like shoes, and as you'll learn, that's a valuable skill when designing phones. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. I guess for uh, today, we're talking about the three recent Pixel devices we launched, Pixel 7a, Pixel Fold, and Pixel Tablet. Maybe we can get into uh, colors, materials, and finishes uh, first. So what went into selecting those? I guess, Isabel, you're you're the perfect place to start with that question.
2: Yeah, I love that question. And I'm going to correct you and be annoying and say we don't select color, we create colors.
0: (laughs) That's a good shout, yes.
2: (laughs) Um, it's not like we just open uh, a book, a, a color book and, and, and pick a color out, but it's an involved process, a balance of art and science where, where we really create every shade from scratch. And in a way, it's pretty simple. We are just really inspired by the world around us. So that could be anything from bag of tea from Japan to soap from Italy um, to a little pom-pom that you found in your kid's drawer of, of toys. Um, it's just we're trying to surround ourselves with these objects that gives us a sense of delight and surprise. And then we create these physical mood boards and, and start there and develop the colors. Actually, during the pandemic, a lot of our color development came from watercoloring.
1: coloring.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, we were actually trying to remove ourselves from all these devices that we rely on so much for you know, being able to work remotely at that time. It was almost like a need to, to fight against that a little bit and go back to basics and and our, our kind of real world physical tools for collaboration.
0: And any manicures happening, creating those colors? Because one of the things you told us in the previous episode, of course, that's a way to sort of see all the colors in day and at night.
2: Yeah, we, I mean, there's multiple methods to the madness. And I think we all have our, our different <laughs> tools and tricks. But again, it goes back to how do we surround ourselves with the world that the consumer and eventually would live in and how do we make sure that it's a color that is both delightful but that also stand the test of time you know these are phones and products that you might live with for many years so even if we want to develop a new kind of brighter uplifting color we want to make sure that you don't get tired of it immediately so Again, that goes back to that deep prototyping and experimentation. And sometimes that involves um, painting our nails. We actually did a a nail polish color exchange party (laughs) a year ago. Wow. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. So it's still part of the process, but it's not the only part of the process, I should say.
1: I have to say the other day we were interviewed by a few YouTubers and they made this comment that they said, wow, your colors, even when you do bright colors, never look cheap. They yeah. always look sophisticated, and and that's a testimony to the color materials and finish team because it's about dialing it in until that color becomes that right level of uh, sophistication, and then taking that you know color is different on each material, so then translating it to each material and tweaking it uh, because we always want things to the color to be right for each product individually, but as an ecosystem. Uh, look great together. So it truly is an art and science.
0: So if we look, for example, at the color C, which was new for Pixel 7a, like how many prototypes of maybe a similar color are there lying around there before you finally say like, okay, this is the perfect color C that's going to be on the device?
2: I mean, I should say over the process of time, I mean, it's in the hundreds, but we often start simply with a physical mood board where we look at different shades, like let's say we're, we're feeling that we need a calming yet refreshing color uh, because of the kind of the world that we're in. Then we start collecting these objects. Then we start extracting colors from that. Um, and then we have actually a beautiful uh, paint uh, painting facility in our building. So we go downstairs mm-hmm. and work with the paint technicians to develop a whole range. It's usually around 20 colors. Um, then we start applying those to forms because like Ivy said earlier, the color might take a different look and have a different look and feel depending on the size of the object, whether it's a tablet or a small earbud or something that goes on your wrist. And there you start thinking about, okay, how does this go with different skin tones, et cetera. So we then apply those those colors on different forms. And then we start kind of playing around with it. And then eventually we align on, on, on what is the right shade or set of shades. So again, it's not usually just one shade, but it's a family of shades. Right. And then we start, you know, developing that in the different materials, because again, the finishes changes how the color shows up and and the materials themselves. And then start working with our engineering partners, our material scientists to bring this to life and into something that can be produced, because that's the other thing. We're not artists, although sometimes I think we wish we were, but, but these products have to be mass manufacturable. So there's a lot of work that actually goes into how, how does this color actually stand the test of, of UV, for example. When right. these products go inside, outside, how does it fade over time? Is it a graceful fade? Um, or does it, you know, overnight go from blue to green? Um, that is not a great experience, although it might be a surprising thing. But it's definitely not delightful. Mm-hmm. So, kind of, it goes from from that more kind of artistic uh, process into a more technical process as the project uh, goes on.
1: And you know, I wanted to build on something that Isabel alluded to: this idea that color also is a byproduct of what society is going through mm-hmm. in terms of when certain colors come into be, because a lot of times people ask us, well, why this color now? And so, you know, if you study this, it goes along somewhat with some uh, societal trends. So right now, you know, there's people need to feel happy. And so it was important that we have some bright colors. There are other times where I remember when we first introduced this color green. It was very much when sustainability was on everyone's mind and nature. So it's an interesting juxtaposition with tapping into the psychology of society, as well as Isabel said, being aware of everything around us and all of the influences.
0: And then I guess uh, just coming back to the color coral, which I think the first time we saw it was on the Google Home Mini, if I'm not mistaken. So now it's on the Pixel 7a. I guess it's a very bright color, but perhaps not as calming as C. Was it like a deliberate, maybe an opposite of C to to introduce it?
2: Yeah, I think when we develop color skews for a particular color line, or in fact our entire portfolio, we want to make sure that there's something there that could appeal to almost everyone. Um, and we know people have certain preferences. Some people like cooler colors. Some people prefer warmer colors. So we want to make sure we have a range. Um, And then we also want to make sure that, you know, some people might prefer something that is a little bit more calming, like the sea, although it's yet refreshing. So it's that that polarity. And then coral was really about this uplifting energy and confidence that we wanted to bring. We've seen, you've seen this color kind of pop up in various forms. Actually, it was at the top of pixel six, the little, when we had the two tone and you you notice we had it on on the mini, and now we thought it was the right time to introduce it on the entire phone. And we think it it's exciting.
0: It definitely is. Now, Claude, coming to you, Pixel Seven A, Pixel Fold as well. The camera bar is there. It seems like we really embraced that as you know something that's core to a Pixel phone.
3: Yeah, absolutely. We've uh, started this design language with Pixel Six, and we wanted to really create something that you can recognize across the room. Um, And that is also very efficient in terms of how we can pack some of our really impressive camera modules into a a very simple and easy to read graphic. So we've built on that. We started with the graphic on six and we've made it more and more durable and refined and simple. And translating it into the, I guess the 7A is interesting because it we're borrowing a lot of the flagship design language, right? We want that Mm -hmm. user to experience the the full the full experience of like Google design with the materials, with the camera bar um, that speaks of durability, craftsmanship, and precision. But we also, um, you know, it's it's executed in a different way. It's a more cute version of it. It's it's a little more soft. Uh, and then on the foldable, we're using a variant of it. So we, we wanted to design like we, we're trying to not have a cookie cutter approach to our design language. So that's how you can see mm-hmm. that on the foldable We've taken a little bit of a different approach with the floating island, but it's still very distinctly pixel and um, leveraging a lot of our uh, materials as well.
0: Now, of course, with the fold, you need to have a hinge to make that foldable thing fold, I guess. And it's a stainless steel hinge. Why did you pick that? So this is the, uh, we call
3: this the spine, which is the hinge cover. The hinge itself is not stainless steel, but the cover is. Yeah. So, so I think in generally speaking, like for us, the ideal material is one that kind of is checks both boxes in terms of mechanical properties, um, such as stiffness, you know, scratch resistance and, but also the visual and tactile appeal of it. In this case, you know, it's the high polished stainless steel um, finish, which is really at the place where you, where you hold the device most of the time. And so, yeah, that's been a, a really critical piece what's happening on the inside is also really important you know we're trying to make the thinnest foldable on the market which puts a lot of pressure if you want on the engineering to build a hinge that is extremely compact but also extremely torsionally stiff and clever so a lot of time was spent um, in this kind of song and dance with engineering to find just the right the right hinge that also has just the right feeling when you open and close a device, right? It should be a very satisfying um, feeling, really, that we're going after.
0: Yeah, well, something also we talked uh, to some of the engineers in previous episodes about the pixel fold, like it needed also, you know, if you use tabletop mode, you have to, of course, be sure that the device remains in tabletop mode when you put it that way, for example.
3: Exactly. Yeah, it has. (laughs) I mean, it needs to work (laughs) really well in a couple of different stages, essentially. And uh, uh, yeah, a lot of trickery that goes into it.
1: Yeah, and I was going to say I'm really proud of the team because there was another uh, foldable model that we had created that we had the discipline to hold back and say, nope, it's not good enough yet. And really wait until we felt like we could do something that was good enough or better than what was out there already. So it's really a testimony to... The fact that we're able to do that and recognize when something isn't good enough.
0: There's a lot of discipline, I guess, involved in design as well, then. Yes. Excellent. So we've talked about phones. We didn't even touch on the Pixel tablet yet. And speaking of touch, it has that nano ceramic coating that we talk a lot about, Isabel. Can you describe what it is and perhaps what it feels like, even if you've never touched it before?
2: Yeah, the goal was to make it feel exactly like a smooth, matte piece of ceramic, and I think we actually succeeded. It was it was a fun process in the beginning when we were working with engineering and they were trying to trying to get us to come up with a spec. Mm-hmm. You know, what is what are the numbers? What is the coefficient friction? Like, how do we measure this? And even though we tried, there was no way of capturing the feeling we were trying to create in numbers. Um, so we, we invited our team members to come and feel this little ceramic plate. And the, the instruction was just like, let's make it feel this way. And then of course, through a lot of prototype and experimentation, we were able to get there. But yeah, the idea, you know, the same way is when, you know, you hold a piece of ceramic, you have a little bit of a cold to the touch, mm-hmm. and then it's smooth yet a little bit grippy, and so the idea is so that when you hold it in your hand, it feels really satisfying. But then also, when it's in its docked mode and sit in your home, it doesn't feel out of place like, you know, more traditional tablets that have that cold um, metal look. So it was kind of to both um, have that comforting feel in the hand as well as the aesthetic when it's in its docked mode.
0: What, what I found interesting and, and fun to see, so when I'm not recording podcasts, I'm talking to a lot of journalists and we had them, of course, in briefings for the product. And you can see their sort of mind blown face when they actually, for the first time, saw the Pixel Tablet case because of, you know, the stand on it and that you don't re- need to remove the case when you dock it. I guess it's maybe also one of the first times you have to experiment with magnets, making sure it's easy to dock in a way that's that's satisfying so could you tell us a little bit more about first of all the dock and then the case as well
2: yeah it's an exciting system that required a lot of prototyping and collaboration with our research team our industrial designers our material scientists our engineers i mean it was it was a true collaboration across um, disciplines and you, yeah, you mentioned it. it, it's a really tough balance to ensure that when you dock it, it feels really secure. I mean, the fact that we were able to float this you know, device off of the table is pretty awesome. Right. At the same time, balance that with the ease of removing. And uh, we spent countless hours and days and months you know, really tuning that so that you could one-handedly dock it with confidence and it would still stay in place if you make the magnets too hard, then it makes it, you know, very cumbersome to remove. But if they're too loose, it would fall off. So at some point we are like, we don't know if we're going to be able to thread this needle. I mean, there were many moments where we were, you know, really, really worried, but we tried all these different layouts and experiments. And, and finally we, we got to a point where, where it was that Goldilocks of that, that experience. And it evolved even things like, you know, experimenting a lot with the front plate material, which is mm-hmm. a kind of a rubberized textile that would give it that satisfying both sound and feel when you dock it. And it also not only felt and sounded good, it actually helps with the magnet and the docking interaction. So this is where, you know, function follows form or form fu- follows function, depending on how you how you look at it. So every single piece of this hardware has been deeply considered to have that moment of surprise and delight and sense of uh, calm and security and trustworthiness of this product.
0: And so where does the case then come in? Because I could imagine, mean, I'd probably make that rookie mistake, then maybe we have it all figured out and then you're like, oh gosh, now we need to have a case on it. And maybe now the magnets are not strong yeah. enough anymore. Or how do I make this stand without being in the way? So, so how did that come to life?
2: Again, through prototyping, you'll probably hear me say, if you count the words, (laughs) the number of times I say prototyping is probably up to 100. Experimentation, prototyping, living with our devices in our our everyday life. I think it's Mm -hmm. very important, again, to step away from our computers, to step away from our offices and, and use these. So we would take prototypes home. We would live with them. Uh, and don't tell anybody, but we would give them to our kids uh, and we would <laughs> see how they would interact with them um, just to make sure that we're thinking through those use cases and those serendipitous moments. And early on, we started realizing, well, once you bring the tablet home and you make it useful in the home, their family members is going to want to use it. And then you're like, wait a minute, you know, I, I spent X amount on this product. I might want to have a case for it. But given it is you know, this idea of it being useful throughout the home, throughout the day, we thought, well, we do need a way once once it leaves the dock, how do you prop it up? How, you know, if you want to do yoga on the floor or, you know, you want to play Lego with your kids. I think many of you I might have experienced when you're trying to prop something up and you try to prop it against something and it falls down, it's kind of annoying. Mm-hmm. But then we wanted yeah. to create a stand that obviously didn't incur any more friction than necessary imagine you would have to take off the case to dock it then back like any moments of friction leads to people kind of just putting it back in the drawer and that, that that's the antithesis to what we're trying to do in the first place which is how can these be more useful in your everyday life so then this idea of this ring came up because we're like wait we create this stand that is more like a ring it can be an infinite angle, so we call it the infinite hinge, and then it can also go onto the dock without you having to remove remove the case. The ideas really came from using early prototypes in our everyday life and having that moment of discovery and then you know, tuning it and uh, perfecting it over time.
3: It's interesting when you talk about friction, Isabel, because I think about friction a lot when I think about the category of foldables. Uh, in the past, there was a big hurdle to overcome for people when they wanted to get into foldables. Yeah, you get the bigger screen, but you also get a clunky device. Um, so you're making a big trade-off. And so for us, for the design team, we really spend a lot of time thinking about how can we reduce those frictions? And um, that was kind of the impetus that led us to this new form, you know, which was like kind of inspired by, you know, like a moleskin book or a passport. This kind of very handy small form factor that is thin. and you know, slides easily into your pocket. Um, and then again, sort of the, uh, the satisfaction around opening and closing it, just like a nice book. So a lot of these elements were inspired by this desire to reduce friction because we knew we could offer something really unique. With our, with our services, we could offer a really unique experience in the foldable space but we needed to make sure that it wasn't going to be something that people feel like it's a trade-off they make.
0: What would you say, Claude, in designing the fold is the your most proud achievement of you or the team in, in getting that exactly right, you feel?
3: Probably two things. One is this song and dance that Isabel was describing between us and, and engineers, you know, to make that form just exactly the right, the right form that feels really great when it's both open and closed, right? You have to really design <laughs> for two instances. That's a, that's an interesting re- constraint that you have as a designer. Um, you can't just optimize for one versus the other. Even though we know that people use the foldables mostly when it's closed, like it's still like a 70 to 30% uh, rough usage. So uh, it has to be really great like a phone first and then also uh, be delightful as a foldable. And I think the other thing is around um, the, the materials. I think being able to shift users' perception of what a foldable could be, particularly when I look at the lighter skew, um, the porcelain skew, it's really interesting how just applying that color um, across the product just really shifted from a, a technology first product to more of a um, something that feels luxurious and and personal and and uh, you can imagine as your daily driver.
1: Yeah, I was going to say with the launch of these products. At this time, I love that we're giving the consumer choices, choices and, and really launching two larger screen possibilities. And because I, I do think the future is, is about um, more personalization of how do I want to work? What do I need? And so I'm very excited to round out the portfolio with, the, with these products so that we can give the consumers choices that we feel great about.
0: So Ivy, maybe I should ask you this question. So we have these devices that are intended for, I guess, different audiences. You also mentioned you also work on on the Google stores, for example. So these are wildly different things. But how do you ensure that they sort of feel and and seem like family in the way they're designed? Like what what's what's sort of the secret behind that?
1: Well, I think the secret is that we are we are one design department. Um, we're a design discipline and then I have different design teams working on these products. But the mission we've all aligned around a core set of principles that underlines all of the aesthetics. And so when you have that held together as the glue, um, and we come together weekly to share the different teams share what they're doing. And we always mm-hmm. use the test of is it, you know, human? optimistic and daring, you know, where's the daring part? Where's the optimistic part? And we kind of spot check, you know, each group spot checks each other. And then when we lay them out together, the idea is that, as I said, we never, we want to do what's right for each product, but as a group, it always has to feel like it came from either the mother or father's DNA. You know, there's some relationship. And so that we really have an aesthetic that people recognize as right. Google. So I think it's a byproduct of us having a central design team, but then with these focused areas and that we come together constantly.
0: I also wanted to talk about sustainability, as that's one of the key focus areas uh, for Pixel. How do you make sure the designs are sustainable? And I guess maybe sustainable in in the way of materials, but also sustainable perhaps in timelessness in in a way. So. What does it take to achieve the goals when it comes to sustainability there?
2: Yeah. So designing for sustainability is a complex and multifaceted approach. It's, you know, we talk about reducing waste in processes and uh, materials. We're uh, very focused on developing healthy materials. And then the third one is designing for longevity. The piece on longevity is both in kind of the use of it as well as how it lasts over time. And I think what's interesting, for example, with the tablet is this idea of how how do we make our products more useful? Um, So so that's a component to sustainability, too. The most sustainable product is the the product that people keep around and don't throw away and want to upgrade immediately. Uh, When it comes to developing healthy materials, you've seen, you know, every year we're we're advancing our um, recycled content. So in Pixel 7a, for example, not only is the aluminum 100% recycled, but also the back resin enclosure is made out of 67% recycled material. And then more recently, we are also uh, starting to design our adhesives to be recycled. So. We're we're not stopping at the exterior. We're going deep into the interior. We have a material science team who are dedicated to advance this every year. It's the beginning of a journey, but we're we're trying to lift every rock um, that we can to, mm-hmm. to to do better. So that that is a little bit on our approach. And maybe maybe you want to speak to some of the packaging parts.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say. I mean, not only is it across product but across packaging you know we made a commitment to be 100 percent plastic free by 2025 we're actually going to be ahead of that um in some products so we're very excited about that and then our retail stores you know our retail stores are the home for these products and you know we in our chelsea store got the highest uh leads uh platinum possible i mean there's very few retail stores that got that level of designation And all of our stores are getting that high level of acknowledgement for sustainability because, and and it is everything, as Isabel says, just like on the product, it's the same thing in the built environment. It's the glue that puts the flooring down. I mean, everything has to be considered. And, you know, we now have with our product development process, there are checkpoints worked into the process where the team has to talk about what, Could we have done for more sustainability and make so everyone's aware of what the possibility is and then be conscious if there's a reason why we didn't do it? So that, you know, the first step is because there's always choices along the way um, and we can't necessarily do everything at this moment, but really at least bringing awareness of what's possible and what's in the way of getting there. So I think it's a it's been a great education for the entire group. All levels, and we're we're proud of you know we are making progress every time.
0: Amazing, Claude. Anything to add there?
3: The only thing I would add is that uh, in the phone space, we, you know, we're starting to ship impressive numbers uh, of phones, and so every little change that we make, particularly on the manufacturing side of things, right—that's the invisible part of it—can really have a huge impact. So we're we're actually as designers spending a lot of time with like things like tooling engineers to figure out which design will be quicker to tool or quicker to you know, machine out. If you have a block of aluminum, how long does it take for our design to be milled out of the solid piece? And that, in fact, has a huge impact on just how many devices you can produce in a certain amount of time, and therefore the carbon footprint um, is accordingly much higher. So, we, yeah, we spend a lot of time on the very finite um, production level as well.
0: I wanted to close off with a a question uh, that touches upon your your careers. Uh, You're all great designers, but I know all three of you did not start out in technology. For example, Ivy, I know you worked on jewelry uh, before joining Google. So I'm wondering, what did you take from a design career at a completely different field into designing technology products. So what kind of lessons did you learn there that maybe you uniquely can apply in your job today? Maybe, Ivy, we can start with you.
1: Yeah, I think we're all a byproduct of our experience, which makes for this beautiful diversity. And I love, I particularly try to assemble diverse teams and experiences because that's what equals creativity because we each come from a different place. My career has been in consumer goods in general, starting as a metalsmith in jewelry the you know, clothing, toys, every, I touched pretty much every category because for me, it's the process. I have to love what the output is, but it's more the process of how we co-create together. Interestingly enough, in each of these categories, I was always a futurist pretty much ahead of the curve. And that's where technology comes in because I think I've always had a love for the future and technology as a tool for creativity, but, you know, From my personal background, I would say, you know, attention to detail is what I learned from my jewelry making experiences. I'm very glad I was a maker with my hands, not just pure design on paper, because there's something about when you connect your mind and hand, you get a new skill set. So I would say that experience is is something I bring unique. But, But really, this idea that in every consumer goods category I've worked in, it's Understanding and having having empathy for your audience as well, so that diversity taught me that there's a number of ways to solve problems, which is what design is about.
0: Claude, what about yourself? Yeah, so I think in the things that
3: I've benefited the most from is being having a really diverse set of um, you know categories and industries that I worked with, um, really specifically. I did a lot of work in like the sports soft goods realm, designing boots, shoes, watches, you know, glasses, things like that. But then also getting on the flip side of it, always being really interested in new technologies that change behavior, that shift behavior. You know, so I, you know, I was working at the time, uh, designing like the the first Kindle and then the first like high end VR headsets. Those are always things that I thought, okay, this is going to change the way that we interact with technology and, Certainly, that's been a big reason for me to want to work at Google, because we have access to these incredible technologies and assets that really allow us to um, responsibly think about how people will integrate this technology into their lives. I think that sort of cross-pollination that you get from a broad background is really helpful.
0: So you mentioned you designed shoes. Is anything of that time that you did that, has that been useful, for example, in designing phones today?
3: Yeah, I mean, well, the phones. I would I would say yes in how shoe design is cyclical. It's 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 very much a fashion product, right? So the the thinking that you have for footwear, where you think about seasons and things like that, uh, can be very much applied to phones as well. And like, how do you create? Uh, interest and desire and and tension and so on. I think that, and how you think graphically about a product also, right? It's it's about the form and the the graphic application. I think so. That that helped a lot. Also, just from the material front, you know, always being really interested in soft technologies and so how we think about our early VR headsets were all made of fabric, which so there was a totally different approach to the industry. And I think right now, when we think about cases and things like that, right, there is a strong element that's about self-expression so that translates
0: amazing and isabel what about you
2: i'll take one example i had the chance earlier in my career and even back in school to exhibit um, at the milan furniture fair Mm -hmm. and that was a an experience in working together with other people and putting together a compelling story and exhibit that people would see and react to and it made me very humble because you put your heart out there and you you have, you put this exhibition together, you, you sweat, blood, tear like you drive a van down there. I mean, it's just, it's just an incredible kind of intense experience. And then to see someone just like walk by and be like, mm, I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or people engaging with you and being interested and asking questions and learning, not, not just how to you know also, yeah, the collaboration part and putting something together, but also learning how to receive and take feedback and listen to um how how people respond to your work and that that's something that you know I've taken with me throughout my entire career, being open to feedback, being interested in how people react versus versus my personal pride in the craft, like you have to kind of set that aside because we're not designing for ourselves, we're designing for other people um so so that's a critical piece. And I'll I'll repeat what Ivy said too. I think it's the making part um, versus being stuck in our computers, but creating things with our hands is another key part. And then now, actually, if many many years later, we had a chance to go back to Milan. Uh, we just came back from from our exhibit shaped by water. Um, so it's been it's been incredible to to get to go back, but with with Google,
0: that's the same exhibit as you you mentioned before. Yeah, amazing.
1: Yeah. I mean, and it's and it's a great. A lot of us go work on that together. It's a great coming together of applying our skills to both the built environment, different scales, which I think is really good. Um, I believe that designers sometimes have to get out of the scale or do something different than you do every day. It's back to that play idea, but and and being able to get, as Isabel said, when you know, real time feedback and see the joy that we bring to people.
0: And you all three definitely do. Well, Ivy, Isabel, Claude, thank you so much for joining us today and teaching us about design at Google.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Well, wasn't that great? And what a great team they are. I learned a lot about design once again, and I'll never forget, designers don't pick colors, they create them, and rightly so. There's much more to come this season of the Made by Google podcast. Next time out, we're talking to the team that creates some of the apps for Pixel that you probably take for granted. I mean, the calculator app, it deserves some more love.